Good day to, to everybody. My name is Tullio Scovazzi. I teach international law at the University of Milano Bicocca in Milan, Italy. It's a great honor for me to have been invited to give a lecture for the audiovisual library of international law of the United Nations. And uh, I want to thank for that uh, the United Nations Codification Division. As I'm supposed uh, to be an expert uh, of international law of the sea, the topic of my lecture is uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and uh, Beyond. I apologize for my strong uh, Italian accent, but I have it, I like it, and I keep it. So my lecture will elaborate uh, on the dynamic and evolutionary aspects of international law of the sea. And I will focus on three main points, namely, first, evolutionary trends have always developed in international law of the sea. Second, in the last decades, uh, these evolutionary trends have been increasingly eroding the traditional principle of freedom of the seas. Third, in several instances, the progressive erosion of the traditional principle of freedom of the sea can lead to a more equitable international regime of the oceans and seas. Uh, let's present some remarks on the relative value of the principle of freedom of the sea, on which several rules of customary international law are based, and on which also several provisions of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea are based. The convention was concluded in 1982, it entered into force in 1994, and it is a great achievement of codification of international law. You see, it is composed of uh, 320 articles and nine annexes. So, also present law of the sea is based on the principle of freedom of the sea. But historically, it was developed uh, at the beginning of the 17th century in an essay by the Dutch scholar Hugo Grotius, De Groot in uh, Dutch, and uh, his essay was on freedom of the sea, mare liberum in Latin. And uh, the great reputation won by this essay was decisive in establishing a solid theoretical foundation in favor of the principle of freedom of the sea. In a very clear Latin language, the author, who was also a learned humanist, developed a simple idea. The sea must be free. For a rule of reason, it is impossible to occupy and delimit infinite natural elements such as air and marine waters. Also, the concept of freedom of the sea has a general character. Grotius had overseas navigation in mind. In particular, the interest of his country, the Netherlands, and of the Dutch East India Company to freely navigate to and from territories located in the eastern and uh, western Indies. But far from being attached to the freedom of the sea as a conceptual dogma, 
Grotius used his elegant style to uphold a pragmatic approach to the question of the legal condition of the sea. He clearly stated that the principle applied to the immense ocean and not to bays, straits, and waters that can be seen from the coast. He also conceded that fishing could be regulated in the hypothetical case of depletion of fish stocks, but navigation was to be free as it left the sea unchanged. Still today, the principle of freedom of the sea is at the basis of international law of the sea. However, when the principle of freedom of the sea was elaborated by Grotius and his followers, uh, nobody had in mind the problems posed today by supertankers, nuclear-propelled vessels, offshore drilling, mining for polymetallic nodules, fishing with unsustainable methods, and many other activities which today take place in the marine environment. This obvious consideration leads to an equally obvious consequence, which is nevertheless sometimes forgotten. We cannot today evoke the same concept that Grotius used at the beginning of the 17th century and give them the same intellectual and legal strength that Grotius gave them. To rely in an absolute way on the principle of freedom of the sea is no longer possible. Today, it cannot be sustained that a state has a right to engage in a specific marine activity simply because it enjoys freedom of the sea without giving any further explanations and without being ready to consider the opposite positions, if any, of other interested states. Also, the concept of freedom of the sea is to be understood in the context of the present range of marine activities and in relation to the other potentially conflicting uses and interests. The needs of navigation and of the so-called other internationally lawful uses of the sea, this mysterious expression is mostly used to mean naval exercises, are still important elements to be taken into consideration. But they have to be balanced with other interests, in particular those which have a collective character and concern the international community as a whole, such as the protection of the marine environment and the sustainable exploitation of marine resources. Far from being an immutable theological dogma, the principle of freedom of the sea is to be understood not in an abstract way, but in the light of the peculiar circumstances under which it should apply today. Another consideration should be added to the picture. Not only does the principle of the sea, of freedom of the sea, have a relative character as any other legal principle, but it has also undergone a process of progressive weakening. The erosion of the principle of freedom of the sea, as far as new interests and activities required a specific regulation, has been the main trend in the evolution of international law of the sea during the second half of the 20th century. New coastal zones, uh, such as the continental shelf, uh, the 200-mile exclusive economic zone, and uh, a new regime, the common heritage of mankind regime for the seabed beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, 
have been created under state's practice or international treaties to limit the application of a regime based on freedom. The erosion of the principle of freedom of the sea constitutes, in my opinion, a positive trend. In fact, we are inclined to give to the word freedom a positive meaning as we are influenced by human rights, freedom of thought, freedom from arbitrary deprivation of liberty, and so on. But if put into the completely different context of law of the sea, the word freedom can today, in several cases, be associated with the lack of an effective regime and with the application of a first-come, first-served approach based on flag state jurisdiction. And in some cases, flag states of convenience jurisdiction, that is, the jurisdiction of a state that cannot or is not willing to exercise an effective control over the ship to which it has granted its flag. The results are mostly undesirable, especially where the exploitation of natural resources or the protection of the environment are at stake. As it was already said many years ago by Mr. Phelps, the agents of the United States during the dispute with Great Britain on the far seals of the Bering Sea, decided by an arbitral court in 1893, I quote, the sea is free only for innocent and inoffensive use, end of quotation. So, coming to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UNCLOS, I already told you that it is a great achievement in the field of codification of international law. Now, as at April 208, the parties to this treaty of codification are 155, 154 states and one international organization, the European community. The UNCLOS, that's the acronym for United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, has been rightly qualified as a constitution for the oceans, a monumental achievement uh, in the international community, the first comprehensive treaty dealing with practically every aspect of the uses and resources of the seas and the oceans, an instrument which has successfully accommodated the competing interests of all nations. And uh, today it is repeatedly stated at the highest level, the General Assembly of the United Nations, in its annual resolution on oceans and the law of the sea, that the UNCLOS sets forth the legal framework within which all activities in the oceans must uh, be carried out. This is true, or better, it is partially true, as I will try to show. In fact, the UNCLOS, as any legal text, is linked to the moment when it was adopted. Being itself a product of the time, the UNCLOS cannot stop the passing of time. While it provides a very solid basis, it will be illusory to think that the UNCLOS is the end of legal regulation. 
yet it is subject to a process of evolution and progressive development which is linked to international practice and presents several aspects. So let's uh, see how the UNCLOS does evolve. And I can point out four ways of evolution. First, evolution by integration. Second, evolution by interpretation. Third, evolution in another context. And fourth, evolution by a new regime. The first case is evolution by integration. Changes with respect to the original UNCLOS regime have been integrated into the UNCLOS itself. For example, the deep sea bed mining regime. It is based in the UNCLOS on the revolutionary concept of common heritage of mankind, sharing of benefits among all states, including the developing countries, and management of the mining regime by an international organization, the International Seabed Authority. But the UNCLOS was not adopted by consensus. It was submitted to vote after all efforts to reach consensus had been exhausted. It received 130 votes in favor, four votes against, and 17 abstentions. Many developed states were among those which cast a negative vote or abstained. And the main criticism was addressed to the regime of the deep seabed. According to the developed states, the UNCLOS regime would have discouraged mining activities by individual states and private concerns. It would have burdened the contractor with excessive financial and other obligations relating also to the field of transfer of technology. It would have disregarded the interests of developed countries in the decision-making procedures within the International Seabed Authority. In 1994, it was clear that the UNCLOS was expected to enter into force formally in the short time, but without the participation of many developed countries, that is, the only states having the sophisticated technology and the financial capability required to engage in deep seabed mining activities. To avoid a substantial failure of the regime based on the principle of common heritage of mankind, the United Nations promoted a new negotiation on part 11 of the UNCLOS dealing with deep seabed mining. It resulted in an agreement which was uh, annexed to a United Nations General Assembly resolution adopted in August 1994. The new regime, while reaffirming the basic principle that the seabed beyond national jurisdiction and its resources are the common heritage of mankind, recognizes that political and economic changes, including in particular a growing reliance on market principles, have necessitated the re-evaluation of some aspects of the regime for the seabed and its resources. In fact, the politically prudent label of implementing agreement uh, is a euphemism for the word amendment, which would have been more correct from the legal point of view. 
the provision of the 1994 implementation agreements and those of the original Part 11 of the UNCLOS shall be interpreted and applied together as a single instrument. However, in the event of any inconsistency between the 1994 implementation agreement and Part 11, the provisions of the former shall prevail. The reality is that in 1994, the most innovative part of UNCLOS was partially changed in its form and substance to meet the hope for universal participation in the Convention. And a second example of evolution by integration is uh, the other UNCLOS implementation agreement which was concluded in 1995 for high seas fisheries. The UNCLOS fisheries re regime has a territorial scope. It is based on a distinction between the waters where coastal states exercise sovereign rights, the 12-mile territorial sea and the 200-mile exclusive economic zone on the one side, and the waters beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, the high seas on the other side, where all states in principle enjoy freedom to fish. But a clear-cut distinction between the sphere of sovereignty and the sphere of freedom does not meet all the needs of fisheries. Due to their natural characteristics, several species, which are the target of fishing activities, do not respect the artificial boundaries that are drawn by men on maps. That's the case of highly migratory species. That's the case of straddling stocks which straddle the border between the exclusive economic zone or the high seas. And today we have to face the depletion of resources caused by illegal, unregulated and unreporting fishing activities which take place mostly on the high seas. Uh, it happens that on the high seas the technical measures of the restraint in fishing for conservation of the living resources such as closed areas, closed seasons, quotas, minimum size of nets and so on should be agreed upon by all the interested states. But if no agreement is reached or if a state is not a party to such an agreement, it is not possible to apply conservation measures agreed under a multilateral treaty to fishing vessels flying the flag of a non-party state. It could be also a flag of convenience. And uh, for this reason, it is difficult to prevent uh, that uh, conservation measures accepted by most interested states be frustrated by a few free rider countries which enjoy the benefits of such measures without burdening themselves with the corresponding duties. So to strengthen the anxious fishery regime and, uh, I quote, agreement for the implementation of the provisions of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea of 10 December 1982 relating to the conservation and management of straddling fish stocks and highly migratory fish stocks, end of quotation, 
was opened for signature in 1995. This treaty has one evident defect, that is the unbearable length of its title and many merits. For example, it contains provisions that derogate from the traditional principle of freedom of fishing on the high seas. On the one hand, all states having a real interest in the fisheries concern have a right to become members of a regional or sub-regional fisheries management organization or to participate in such an arrangement. But on the other hand, only those states which are members of such an organization or participants in such an arrangement or which agree to apply the conservation and management measures established by such an organization or arrangement have access to the fishery resources to which those measures apply. So free riders are not allowed anymore under the 1995 uh, fish uh, stock uh, agreement. And it is interesting to remark that today there is a trend to give a broad interpretation to this agreement and to apply it also to high seas discrete stocks, that is uh, stocks uh, which are located only on the high seas and do not straddle or are not highly migratory species. And there is also a trend to discuss new prospects for a regime to ensure the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity, including genetic resources beyond areas of national jurisdiction. This may lead to the negotiation for another UNCLOS implementation agreement, perhaps, as it is suggested today by some states. Building upon a UNCLOS provision, namely Article 194, Paragraph 5, according to which the measures taken to protect the marine environment shall include the measures necessary to pr protect and preserve rare or fragile ecosystems as well as the habitat of depleted, threatened or endangered species and other forms of marine life. And this provision applies everywhere on the high seas and as well as in water subject to national jurisdiction. So I will now deal with the second possibility of evolution, evolution by interpretation. In certain cases, two or even more interpretations of the UNCLOS relevant provisions are admissible and international practice may develop in one or in another direction. For example, in the case of straight baselines, straight baselines are used as an exception to the normal rule of the low water mark to measure the extent of coastal zones such as the territorial sea or the exclusive economic zone. And uh, the UNCLOS provides for very restricted geographical condition for a state 
to be allowed to establish straight baselines. The coast must be deeply indented and cut into. There must be a fringe of islands in the immediate vicinity of the coast and other conditions. But in practice, uh, most states have uh, followed a rather liberal interpretation of the UNCLOS rules. They have established straight baselines even in areas where a strict reading of the UNCLOS provision would not allowed to do that. And protests are in most cases limited to very few states. So the conclusion may be that present states practice substantially departs from the strict wording of the relevant provisions of the UNCLOS. Another example is given by passage through the territorial sea of ships carrying dangerous substances. Different interpretations of the UNCLOS relevant provision result from the statements made by parties at the moment of signing or ratifying the UNCLOS. According to some states, none of the provisions of the UNCLOS can be regarded as entitling the coastal state to make the innocent passage of any specific category of foreign ships dependent on prior consent or notification. But other states declared that they will require foreign nuclear-powered ships and ships carrying nuclear or other dangerous or noxious substances to obtain authorization before passing through their territorial sea. And a third solution is also admissible, that is notification without authorization. It was adopted, for instance, in the 1996 Izmir Protocol to the Barcelona Convention on the Protection of the Mediterranean Sea Against Pollution. This protocol deals with the, the transboundary movements of hazardous wastes and their disposal. So such an approach of uh, notification without authorization seems to strike a fair balance between the interests of navigation on the one side and the interests of the protection of the marine and coastal environment on the other side. While the passage of ships carrying hazardous wastes cannot be prevented or delayed by a requirement to obtain prior authorization, the coastal state is entitled at least to know what occurs in its territorial sea and it can be prepared to intervene in cases of casualties during passage which could endanger the coastal environment. And besides, if notification were not given and an accident occurred, the flag state could be held responsible for an internationally wrongful act and be liable to pay compensation for damages to the coastal state. Another case of uh, evolution by interpretation is uh, the question of military exercises in the exclusive economic zone of other states. Again, here we have different statements by parties to the UNCLOS. Some states understand 
that the provisions of the Convention do not authorize other states to carry out military exercises or maneuvers, in particular those including the use of weapons or explosives in the exclusive economic zone of the others without the consent of the coastal state. But according to other states, the rights and jurisdiction of the coastal states in the exclusive economic zone do not include the right to obtain notification of military exercises or maneuvers or to authorize them. It is a question of interpretation and uh, I do not have uh, time to enter into details and to discuss the, the, the question. But I would only point out that uh, a third possibility is also admissible according to a very particular provision of the UNCLOS, that is Article 59. Under Article 59, I quote, in cases where this convention does not attribute rights or jurisdiction to the coastal state or to other states within the exclusive economic zone, and a conflict arises between the interests of the coastal state and any other state, the conflict should be resolved on the basis of equity and in the light of all the relevant circumstances, taking into account the respective importance of the interests involved to the parties as well as to the international community as a whole. And in case of naval exercise with weapons, the balance of interest established by Article 59 would in most cases play in favor of the coastal state, while the coastal state could easily put forward its right and responsibility to ensure the management of the resources and the protection of the marine environment in its exclusive economic zone, the other state would be asked to explain why the operations with weapons have to be conducted precisely within that particular exclusive economic zone and not on the high seas or within its own exclusive economic zone. And the third possibility is evolution in another context. Uh, in uh, few cases, uh, the UNCLOS regime is not clear on purpose and uh, customary rules uh, may be created by international practice. The lack of a clear regime within the UNCLOS may be explained by the choice of the drafters themselves to leave some very controversial issue unresolved and avoid clear-cut solutions which could have precluded universal acceptance of the UNCLOS as an instrument of codification of the law of the sea. I will give two examples. First, first the delimitation of the exclusive economic zone and of the continental shelf. Articles 74 and 83 of the UNCLOS do not say very much on these questions. I quote, the delimitation of the exclusive economic zone between states which opposite or adjacent coasts shall be affected by agreement on the basis of international law as referred to in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice in order to achieve an equitable solution." End of quotation. But the, the question to be addressed 
is precisely what rules apply if there is no agreement. If there is an agreement, we apply the agreement. But what to do if the parties cannot agree upon any uh, solutions? And these questions is not solved by the ANCLOS. But now we have a number of judicial decisions by the International Court of Justice or by arbitral tribunals which can explain what is uh, the rule when the equidistance line can be applied to the limit and when there are instead special circumstances which lead to another method of delimitation. For example, the shifting of the equidistance line or the reduced effect of islands or the establishment of an enclave and other methods. But this is a judicial development. And another case of evolution in another context could be the question of historic waters. The Anclos only mentions the so-called historic base in Article 10, Paragraph 6, without saying what they are. And in that case, we have only a limited international practice. International practice has not yet developed to provide clear customary rules applicable to historic waters, which could explain what historic waters are and when a claim on historic waters can be put forward by a coastal state. And the fourth and last case uh, of uh, evolution, that's the case of evolution beyond the Anclos, is evolution by a new regime. In some cases, an Anclos regime is lacking, uh, or the Anclos regime is clearly unsatisfactory. Uh, for example, in the case of exploitation of genetic resources in areas beyond national jurisdiction, the high seas or the seabed of the high seas, the Anclos regime is lacking for very simple chronological reasons. Today, we know that uh, there are some deep seabed uh, organisms which have uh, the ability to survive in extreme temperatures. They are called thermophiles or hyperthermophiles and other extreme conditions, extremophiles. And uh, the genetic uh, heritage of these organisms is of great interest today for science and uh, industry. So today, a new activity is taking place, bioprospecting, that is the search for commercially valuable genetic resources of the deep seabed or the high seas. But at the time when the ANCLOS was being drafted, very little was known about the genetic qualities of deep seabed organisms. And this can explain the lack of an ANCLOS regime. The potential value of genetic resources was not considered by the ANCLOS negotiators for very simple chronological reasons. The words bioprospecting or the words genetic resources do not even, even appear in the text of uh, the 
anchors. So today, this kind of new activities call for a specific international legal framework applying at the intergovernmental level. So also in the field of bioprospecting, it is likely that the abstract application of the principle of freedom of the sea, that is the first come, first served rule, would lead to hardly acceptable consequences. New cooperative schemes have to be envisaged at the international level, probably based on the principle of fair and equitable sharing of the benefits arising out of the utilization of genetic resources of the high seas and the seabed. This principle is already embodied in Article 1 of the 1992 Convention on Biological Diversity. And my, my second example is uh, the, the case of underwater cultural heritage. In that case, I must say that the UNCLOS regime is not only insufficient, but also counterproductive. In such a monument of international law as the UNCLOS, we can understand it is inevitable that uh, some uh, very few bad provisions can be found, and I have no doubt the, the worst provision in the UNCLOS is Article 303, Paragraph 3, according to which nothing in this article, which is devoted to the regime of underwater cultural heritage, affects the law of salvage and other rules of admiralty. So salvage law and other rules of admiralty are given an overarching status by the UNCLOS, at least in the English official text, uh, as uh, the French official text uh, is rather different and could lead to a different interpretation. So the obligation to protect objects of archaeological and historical nature found at sea is subordinated to a set of rules, admiralty law, which is applied in a few common law countries, and uh, this uh, body of rules is inspired uh, by the purpose of commercial exploitation of properties found at sea. So the law of fines, which belongs to admiralty law, means that a person who discovers a shipwreck in navigable waters that has been long lost and abandoned and who reduces the property to actual or constructive possession becomes the property's owner. And the law of salvage, which also belongs to admiralty law and applies when the owner of the object found at sea is known, gives to the salvor a lion or a right in rem, to say it in Latin, over the object. So the expression, the law of salvage and other rules of admiralty, which is used in the English text of the UNCLOS, simply means the application of a first come, first served, or freedom of fishing approach, which can only serve the interest of private commercial gain and not the interest of devoting research to the underwater cultural heritage. So rather than protecting the underwater cultural heritage, 
Article 303, paragraph 3 of the UNCLOS, is a covert invitation to the looting of such heritage. So, to bring a remedy to the disastrous situation created by this provision of the UNCLOS, a convention on the protection of the underwater cultural heritage has been adopted in 2001 under the sponsorship of UNESCO, that is the United Nations Agency for Science, Education and Culture, and the UNESCO Convention rejects the first-come, first-served approach and is based on cooperation among the states, all the states which have a verifiable link with the heritage in order to ensure its best protection. Salvage law and law of fines, that is admiralty law, do not apply under the UNESCO Convention except as in cases where they are not detrimental to the conservation of the underwater cultural heritage. The UNESCO Convention is not yet in force. It requires 20 ratifications to enter into force, but I do hope that it will enter into force in a very short delay. Uh, another area in which uh, evolution of uh, the UNCLOS is perhaps needed is uh, the, the question of uh, suppression of crimes at sea. Uh, only in the case of piracy under the, the UNCLOS, a foreign ship may be seized on the high seas and uh, the people responsible of piracy may be arrested and brought to trial. But in fact, uh, it is difficult to, to be uh, a pirate uh, under Article 101 of the UNCLOS, uh, several conditions are listed. For example, the act of piracy must be committed for private ends and it must be committed on the high seas against another ship. So we need two ships to have a situation of piracy. And uh, today, piracy, which still exists in certain areas of, of the world, uh, is uh, carried out uh, within the territorial waters of certain states, because in that case, the pirate can be arrested only by the coastal state and not by everybody, as in the case of acts of piracy committed on the high seas. And uh, also, as regards other crimes which may be committed uh, at sea, maybe the UNCLOS provisions need to be strengthened. For example, in the case uh, of slavery, slave trafficking, uh, states have only a right to visit on the high seas a ship which is suspected to engage in slave trafficking but they cannot do nothing else. They, they cannot arrest the ship uh, or the, the people responsible for slavery. Just transmit information to the flag state. Uh, 
Also in the case of drug uh, trafficking, Article 108 uh, of the UNCLOS, uh, there is an obligation to cooperate, uh, but uh, you, you cannot arrest on the high seas a foreign ship uh, which is uh, engaged in drug trafficking. You can only ask the cooperation of the flag state. And as I already told you, we have the problem of flags of convenience states which do not exercise sufficient control over ships flying their flag. And nothing is said in the UNCLOS about uh, the illicit trafficking of weapons of mass destruction that can be used by terrorists. Uh, some bilateral agreements have been concluded by states. This agreement allow for the boarding of ships flying the flag of the other party and for arresting people responsible for such crimes. But uh, maybe a, a broader regime based on general rules uh, should be reconsidered to strengthen the possibility to prevent crimes on the high sea and in the case of piracy, crimes also in the territorial waters of coastal states. So, in conclusion, let me repeat. While it provides a solid basis, it would be illusory to think that the UNCLOS is the end of legal regulation. Yet, it is subject to a process of evolution and progressive development, which is linked to international practice and presents today several aspects. But this is the interesting aspects of international law of the sea, that is evolution and change. So maybe other questions could be considered. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know who said this, maybe he was Voltaire, that uh, the secret to bore people is to want to say everything. So I will stop here and I thank you for your attention.